This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. This episode contains reference of child abuse and the sexual exploitation of minor girls. There is also reference to suicide, so please consider this before listening. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to say a huge thank you to all of my listeners in South Africa and around the world. We reached 500 downloads last week, and I could not have done it without any of your support. So thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Revelations 5, verse 1 to 8. I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. It was covered in writing on both sides and was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel who announced in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But there was no one in heaven or on earth or in the world below who could open the scroll and look inside it. I cried bitterly because no one could be found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't cry, look! A lion from Judah's tribe, the great descendant of David, has won the victory, and he can break the seven seals and open the scroll. Then I saw a lamb standing in the center of the throne, surrounded by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb appeared to have been killed. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that have been sent throughout the whole earth. The lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. As he did so, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers from God's people. This is Decoding Cults, and I'm your host, Palsy. You are listening to The Branch Davidians, Part 3. In this episode, we will look at the showdown between George Roden and Vernon Howell, who won, and what happened next. Last week, we ended with George Roden was trying his best to, at most, get rid of Vernon and at least turn the followers against him. Vernon, however, was very well liked within the community and, with the backing of Lois, was primed to become the next leader. Vernon had announced that it was time for those followers outside of the compound to hear his sermons. He and Lois drafted a letter together inviting people from across the U.S., 
and some other countries where they had followers to come and listen to him speak. By the end of 1983, Vernon was doing most of the preaching and was basically running the group. People truly believed that he was a prophet from God. Tension was building between George and him. The rumors being spread by George were starting to take root in a small number of followers, but not nearly enough to make an impact. George had even taken to the pulpit one Sabbath, and his sermon was basically an attack on Vernon. At some point in the sermon, one of the congregants stood up for Vernon. This angered George so much that he physically pushed over one of the older female members who fell to the ground. Vernon quietly got up from his seat, helped the lady up, and they left the chapel. Many of the congregants followed them out. It was here where Lewis realized that Vernon was indeed going to be the next leader. In January of 1984, Vernon declared that he had received another message from God. This message proclaimed that he was to wed Rachel Jones, daughter of Perry Jones. Perry and his wife Mary Bell were happy to have Vernon as part of the family and gave their consent. Now, Vernon was 24 years old by this time, but Rachel was only 14. While I let that sink in, I just want to remind you that in the state of Texas, girls are allowed to get married from the age of 14, as long as they have parental consent. I am in no way justifying what he did at all. I just want to unpack what may have led him to think that it was okay and also let others feel that what he was doing was okay. Firstly, Vernon's mom had had him at the age of 14. His aunt married a soldier when she was 14 years old as well. So I surmise that to Vernon, this was a perfectly normal age for people to get married. According to populationmatter.org, about 300,000 children with a few as young as 10, were married in the U.S. between 2000 and 2018. Child marriage is still legal in 46 states, and it is only in recent years that the remaining four states, Delaware, New Jersey, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania, banned the practice, with no exceptions. We even have similar laws here in South Africa. As I explained in Episode 2, a girl can get married from the age of 15 with parental consent, but under our customary marriages law, there is no age limit. I also found a News24 article from 2019 which said 22 underage children get married every minute, the highest prevalence in Africa. It then goes on to say that in South Africa alone, around 6% of girls marry before they turn 18 but the figure might be higher than that because a lot of it does not get reported. And then, what about the Joneses? Well, here's this young man who you believe is a prophet of God. You believe that he receives messages from God and have followed them up to this point. So it would stand to reason that you would believe this kind of proclamation. Again, I am not condoning this at all. In my opinion... At 14, a girl is still a child and is definitely not emotionally mature enough to be a wife, let alone have children of her own. It seems like whatever alleged relationship he was having with Lois was now over. I have no idea how she felt about this. 
but we do know that she was still proclaiming that Vernon would be the next leader of the group. Tensions grew, especially from George's camp. Later that year, a fire broke out at the compound, which destroyed the administration building and the printing press. It is said that the damages amounted to $500,000, which would be around $1.3 million in today's terms, or 18.9 million rand. George sprung onto this opportunity. He blamed Vernon for the fire, although Vernon denied it, and chased Vernon and his family off of the property by gunpoint. A second group, who did not want to follow either George or Vernon, left and settled somewhere in Alabama under the leadership of Charlie Pace. Those who still believed that Vernon was to be the next leader would leave the compound to join him. Some of them were even kicked off the compound by George. Lewis was distraught. By this time, she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. I think this is the reason why she did not fight George on the issue. She did, however, spend time between the compound and Vernon in an effort to try to get him to come back. Vernon, his wife Rachel, her brother David, her sister Michelle, and their father Perry Jones, along with another handful of followers, moved to Waco. They felt that they were still under threat from George, and then relocated to Palestine, Texas, which the locals pronounce as Palestine. Coincidentally, Palestine, not the one in Texas, was the place where Victor Hautef had predicted that the remnant would found the theocratic kingdom. The group settled outside of town, and they lived in old-school buses, tents, and shelters made from plywood. Life was tough, but by all accounts, it seems like the followers were pretty content with life. Vernon and a few of his closest allies would often travel to California to recruit new members. Vernon did not outright recruit by spreading his message immediately. He would start out by using a love of music to form an initial bond with people. An ex-follower even described in an interview, He was straightforward, a straight shooter, but he could be very humble. In the early days, he used to do a lot of work with drug addicts and homeless people in California. He was really good at dealing with them. Please don't get me wrong, I'm all for helping your fellow man, but from what I have learned about Vernon, especially things that will emerge, I kind of think that this was also a tactic to get followers. From what I have read, Vernon was particularly good at reading people and getting to know where their buttons are. Then, he would be able to relate to them on their level and bring them into the fold. By helping these completely vulnerable people, I think it may have been an easier in to get them to follow him. But, as we will learn a bit later, it would not just be the vulnerable people that he would get into the fold, he would also bring in some highly educated people as well. In 1985, Vernon and a handful of his followers went on what they called a pilgrimage to Israel. On this trip there, Vernon allegedly had some significant revelations revealed to him. He claims that he was taken in a chariot to the constellation of Orion and shown some truths. The first of these was where he claimed that it had been revealed to him that he was the temporary Cyrus on earth and was chosen to free God's people. J. 
just like the ancient King Cyrus from the Bible had freed the Jews from Babylon and helped them rebuild their temple. The second was that he had learned to interpret the entirety of the Bible 100% accurately, and that he was the only one that could do this. The next one was that there would be a final showdown between good and evil in Jerusalem. This proclamation was not at all bizarre to his followers. Way back during the formative years of Seventh-day Adventism, one of their core beliefs was that there was a power struggle between good and evil, or Satan and heaven, right here on earth, and that the end of this battle would lead to the second advent. As most of the followers had an SDA background, it would stand to reason that they would believe it. Lastly, Vernon proclaimed that the last battle would happen at some point in 1995. His sermons also turned more towards the seven seals that were written about in the book of Revelations. The seven seals are end of times judgments from God, and as each seal is broken, a new judgment is unleashed on earth. Here we can see the beginnings of a cult-like structure. Vernon, who was already seen as a prophet, is now further emphasizing this by claiming that he is a temporary Cyrus on earth. He is also creating an us versus them scenario, using the great battle between good and evil. Furthermore, he is putting himself forward as the only one with the information that could lead to his followers' salvation, in stating that only he could accurately interpret the Bible. Perry Jones, still a staunch believer, would go to California to recruit for Vernon. One significant recruit was Mark Bro. Mark, who was originally from Hawaii, had gone to California to study religion at the SDA college. Mark had very poor eyesight, and the church had told him that he would basically not be able to preach because of this. He was understandably upset by this, as he now had a qualification that he couldn't use. Perry ran into Mark at a bookshop in 1986 and struck up a conversation with him. Mark was intrigued and met Vernon shortly after. Mark and Vernon became fast friends, sometimes saying that they were like brothers. Mark, in turn, would bring in a very significant convert by the name of Steve Schneider. Steve, who was born in Wisconsin in 1949, attended an SDA boarding school in his high school years, and it is here that he found a deep passion for the Bible and religion. After school, he went to Hawaii for a while and got into the surfing scene there. When he finally returned home, he met a beautiful young lady by the name of Judy. She was a very popular young lady. She had been raised Lutheran and was set to study fashion design. When Steve took Judy on a holiday to Hawaii, her studies became a thing of the past. The couple moved to Hawaii in 1978, and here Judy worked two jobs so that Steve could study religion at the University of Hawaii. The couple finally married in 1981. By all accounts, they were a very happy couple and very much in love. In 1986, while Steve was still working toward his PhD in Hawaii, he met Mark. Mark had told him about Vernon and his teachings. At first Mark was super skeptical about it, especially with his religious background, 
but it all changed when he met Vernon, and he and his wife soon became a big part of the group. Another significant convert was Douglas Wayne Martin, known as Wayne at the compound. Wayne had studied law at the prestigious Harvard University. He was not a huge fan of the fast-paced world in Boston and decided to open a small practice in Waco, Texas, where he mostly dealt with smaller issues, such as liability cases. He was very well liked by his colleagues around town. He met his wife Sheila, and they had six children together. One of their sons contracted meningitis. According to the Mayo Clinic, meningitis is an inflammation in the fluid and membranes surrounding your brain and spinal cord. There are different causes of meningitis, such as viral, bacterial, parasitic, or fungal infection. Some infections may improve without treatment, but some, specifically those caused by bacterial infection, may cause serious complications or even be fatal. This illness left the poor young boy somewhat disabled and with very poor eyesight. It affected Wayne deeply. His wife gave him tapes with Vernon's teachings on them. He did not immediately listen to them, but eventually, when he did, they gave him the answers that he was seeking. He and his family started following Vernon. One more person that Mark brought in was Sherry Jewell, born in Honolulu in Hawaii. She moved with her mother to California when her parents separated. Having been raised a Methodist, she converted to Seventh-day Adventism in college and moved to Michigan to teach high school. Here, she married a young man called David Jewell, also part of the SDA church, and they had a daughter who they named Kerry. By some accounts, the marriage wasn't all that happy. Her mother said in an interview with Time magazine, She was so sad. Sherry was always a very up person. She was having such a hard time. They finally divorced in 1984 and Sherry moved back to Hawaii with Kerry. A while later, she became friends with Mark and he would eventually introduce her to Vernon. She was enthralled by his teachings and moved to Waco with Kerry in tow. It was also during 1986 when David made another proclamation. He stated that he had received a message that Karen Doyle was to be his next spiritual wife. The laws in Texas clearly state that polygamy is illegal, so he could not legally marry her, thus the spiritual wife claim. Karen was the daughter of longtime Davidian follower Clive Doyle. He had been a believer and had come to join the group back when Ben Roden was still alive. Clive gave his blessing. Unsurprisingly, Karen was only 14 years old at this time and Vernon was already 27. Again, I am not condoning this, but as his first and legal wife was only 14 when they had married, I could understand how this would be normal to the followers. He also announced that 17-year-old Robin Bunce and 20-year-old Dana Okimoto were to be his wives. Now, these wives were not married with any sort of ceremony. Basically, once he had approval, he would have sex with them and that would make them his wife. The thing is, some of these wives 
had even been sleeping with him before these visions, like Robin Bunce. Because of the way in which Vernon would proclaim his visions, it actually made these girls feel special, like they had been chosen by God to be the prophet's wife. A short time later, he made another claim that he was to take another spiritual wife. This time, however, it wasn't as well received as the previous two. The thing is, he had claimed that it was to be Michelle Jones, Rachel's 12-year-old sister. This time it was a little harder for the group to accept this claim. After all, she was only 12. Vernon tried to defend his claim by stating that he had gotten the message directly from God when he was back in Israel. He also tried to justify it by claiming that the Virgin Mary was only 12 when she was pregnant with Jesus. I looked into this claim quite a bit and found that while there is no actual reference to Mary's age in the Bible, there are those who claim that girls between the age of 12 and 14 did marry at the time. It was only when Rachel said that she had had a dream where God spoke to her. She said that God had told her that if Vernon was not able to completely follow this path and fulfill these proclamations, that he would die. Apparently this reinforced the claim on Michelle and he received the Jones's blessing to take her as his spiritual wife. Back at Mount Carmel, things weren't going so well for Lois. According to twobranches.info, Lois endeavoured to carry on with her ministry, but with little success, and her health suffered. Her treatment at the hands of her son George, which resulted in mental and physical torture, included a reported incident of George hog-tying her and taking her to a mental institution, trying to have her committed. Her attempts to get Vernon back to lead on the compound all but failed. Sadly, Lois succumbed to her illness and passed away on 10 November 1986 at the age of 70. Her body was transported to Israel so that she could be laid to rest next to her husband on the Mount of Olives. George finally had control of Mount Carmel. He immediately renamed it Rodenville and made Vernon out to be their greatest enemy. He now also put himself forward as a prophet. He was still prone to outbursts and would often get into heated fights with people who still lived on the compound. In a television interview, as he was showing the journalist around his Rodenville sporting a gun, he likened his rivalry with Vernon to a holy jihad. He also changed all of the rules within the compound. Slowly, those who were still loyal to Lois had decided to leave and seek out Vernon's group. George also started to gather more outsiders and bring them to the compound. It was alleged that some of these new members were criminals and that there was even a meth lab on the compound during this time. 1987 was quite a big year for both Vernon and George. Vernon had claimed another spiritual wife, namely Nicole Ghent, who was only 16. In October of 1987, George married Emma Paul Bishop. Even though George was in control at Rodenville, he was still threatened by Vernon's leadership. In an effort to finally claim that he was the true leader, George challenged Vernon. He said that they should both attempt to bring someone back from the dead. 
he further said that whoever would be able to achieve this would become the official leader of the entire group and the other would need to step down. George went ahead and dug up the body of a young lady called Anna Hughes, who had died 20 years before and was buried in the Davidian Cemetery. There were accounts from people who were still at the compound around that time that George had actually attempted to raise her from the dead, but had not succeeded. Vernon, however, did not take the bait. Instead, he went to the sheriff's department. He inquired about the legality of digging up a body. According to thc.texas.gov, the Texas Penal Code states that a person who intentionally or knowingly disinters or disturbs a human corpse has committed a Class A misdemeanor. A person commits an offense if they knowingly vandalize or damage the space of the interred. This Class A misdemeanor is punishable by fine and jail confinement. This falls under the Texas Penal Code Section 42.08, Abuse of a Corpse, where they give the different definitions for disturbing a corpse and what they define as a corpse. The Sheriff's Department was not eager to rush over to the compound, as it was still seen as a religious community. They told Vernon that he would need to bring photographic proof to them before they could do anything about the situation. One of Perry Jones's sons, Sam, was still living at the compound at this time. Vernon reached out to him and asked if he could take pictures of the corpse for them. He agreed. One evening, he snuck into the chapel where the coffin was being kept and took photographs of it. When Vernon received the photos, he immediately took them to the authorities. The authorities, however, weren't able to assist him. It turns out that all of the photos were of a coffin which was draped with an Israeli flag, and there was no actual evidence of a body. The sheriff told them that in order to help them, they would need a photo of the actual corpse. They could not turn to Sam again for assistance, as he and George had had a huge disagreement and Sam had left the compound. Over the next 30 days, Vernon and a few of his followers planned and prepared to enter the compound and get photos of the corpse themselves. As they knew George carried weapons, they decided to bring their own just in case. On the evening of 2 November 1987, Vernon and seven of his followers dressed in deer hunting gear. One of the members was given a camera and the rest were given weapons and a flashlight. Under the cover of darkness, they entered the compound. The man with the camera headed straight for the chapel, as this was the last known place where the body had been. When he reached the chapel, it was empty. The coffin had been moved. The rest of the group had spread out to cover their bases. Their cover was blown when dogs started barking on the compound. George came out with a machine gun and the group retreated, camping out in a nearby field for the evening. As they had not gotten the evidence that they needed, they decided to go back the next day to try and get it again. This time George was waiting for them, and a shootout ensued between the two groups. George was wounded in his one hand and chest, but none of these were fatal. The sheriff's department showed up at the compound within 20 minutes of the start of the shootout, and Vernon and his followers were arrested for attempted murder. 
The media got wind of the story, and they called them the Rodenville Eight. While Vernon and his followers were waiting to go on trial, George did his best to make sure that they go to jail. Unfortunately, George's best was not the best way to go about it. George would write letters to the court, stating that should Vernon go free, he would curse them, and they would all get AIDS. Between this and George using profanity in court, including admitting to digging up Anna's body and trying to resurrect it, he was found in contempt and was jailed for 90 days. During this time, it also came to light that George was not only not allowed to lead the religious community, but he was also not allowed on the property according to the judgment from the case that he had lost to his mother in 1979. They also found that taxes hadn't been paid on the property in years. The case against Vernon and his seven accomplices went to trial and the seven were acquitted. Vernon, however, had a hung jury for his part. A mistrial was declared and he was set free. They did not pursue the matter any further. Vernon and his followers found out about the issue of the back taxes for the Mount Carmel property. They raised the money by reaching out to a well-to-do Branch Davidian family in Hawaii, paid the $68,000 back in full, and Vernon took full legal ownership of the property. $68,000 in 1988 would equate to just under $157,000 today, which is about 2.25 million rand. The entire group moved back to the Mount Carmel compound. George's wife Emma was still living on the property. They offered for her to stay there, but she decided to move away. Before we carry on with life back at Mount Carmel, I just want to finish George's story. After George was released from jail and had officially been banned from Mount Carmel, he settled in Odessa. In 1989, he killed a man called Wayman Dale Adair, who was 56. There are varying accounts on how he had come to know Wayman. Some say that they were roommates, others say that he was a neighbour, and others still claim that he was sent by Vernon to kill him or share a divine revelation. Regardless of the circumstances, George killed him with an axe. While George was waiting for his trial, he attempted to commit suicide in his jail cell. He tried to hang himself with a bedsheet but it had torn. The staff had heard a thud, and when they went to inspect where it had come from, they found George on the floor with the sheet still around his neck. At his murder trial, he was found not guilty by his peers by reason of insanity. Following this verdict, he was committed to a mental institution. His wife Emma filed for divorce shortly after his commitment to the institution. This couldn't have helped his state of mind at that time. Later, he was moved to the Big Springs State Hospital. On 30 September 1993, George escaped from hospital. Well, I say escaped, but he basically just walked out of the front door. The local police and the Texas Rangers were called in to help search for him. Four days later, they found him in Abilene, Texas 
which is about an hour and 40 minutes drive from Big Spring. Then, in 1995, he got away again. This time he went to New York. George caused major disruptions at the Israeli consulate there. Reports were that he was causing a commotion at the consulate because they had denied him a visa after he had claimed that he was Jewish and that he needed asylum as he was allegedly being hunted by hitmen who were being trained by the Palestine Liberation Organization. The PLO was an organization that was founded in 1964 in order to liberate Palestine and are dedicated to the restoration of the Palestinian homeland through armed struggle. Now, call me a skeptic, but I am pretty sure that the PLO had more important things to do than kill a random guy from Texas. George was caught again and taken back to the Big Spring State Hospital. On 8 December 1998, at the age of 60, George made his final escape. The sad thing is, he didn't get very far. He was found dead on the grounds of the hospital. Later, in an autopsy, it was revealed that he had succumbed to a heart attack. In our next episode, we will look at life on the compound under Vernon's rule and how things became super cult-like. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA, and if you order, tell them that I sent you for a 5% discount. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.